Brother Larry reminded me during the time we were shaking out, shaking hands, that um, I think the forecast calls for some rain on Saturday. We're going rain or shine with the uh, with the outreach program. So bring an umbrella if it rains, and you won't melt if you get wet. So uh, hope you don't catch cold. We're taking no excuses for not being here next Sunday. So everybody, be here to help us out on Saturday if you possibly can. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 16. And today in our study of Matthew's gospel, we come to another one of these critical junctures in this gospel account. Uh, Most people are drawn to this chapter or recognize it by the 18th verse in which Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a very important chapter. And we find in it the first mention of the Lord's church in the New Testament. Uh, We're going to talk about the church in future messages as we go along here. The church is God's plan and God's program for the world in this present age. And it will be until Christ comes and raptures all of his people out of the world. We meet as a church and we are members of the church because the Bible very clearly says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now that tells me and it ought to tell you that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is very, very important. And as I said, we're going to talk some more about the church as we get into the next verses of Scripture. But this chapter is also very important because here Jesus very plainly tells his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. There he will suffer and he will die on the cross. And from this point in Jesus' ministry, he spends less and less time with the crowds and spends more time instructing his disciples as he is about to go to the cross, of course, and to leave them. In this chapter, we also find the statement of Christ's resurrection. Uh, He's already taught about the resurrection in chapter 12. And then in the beginning of this chapter that we studied a couple of weeks ago, Jesus mentions the resurrection again, and he framed it in the same terms that he did in that 12th chapter, where he talked about it as being the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that might have been somewhat cryptic to the disciples and others, even though it shouldn't have been. But we're going to find that he very, very clearly tells his disciples that he will be killed and then he will arise from the grave. But before we get to those very important teachings, we have this passage, which may be the most important of all that we find here, and it contains a very critical question. Jesus asked his disciples, whom say ye that I am? Now that question is really the apex or the climax of the book of Matthew as he's building to this point where we can see very clearly or he wants us to understand very clearly who Jesus is. And so the question is asked to all of us, do you understand truly who Jesus is? And we could go even further to say that the answer to that question is the central point of the entire Bible. That the Bible was written to reveal to us Jesus Christ. Now we have Old Testament pictures, we have ceremonies and sacrifices that are given in the Old Testament that tell us about Christ. And it should be evident who he is. The interpretations of those Old Testament pictures are found in the New Testament. And so the answer to who Jesus is seems to be only too obvious. And yet... 
Who Jesus is is the most hotly debated question in all the history of religion in the entire world. We don't ask this kind of question about Muhammad. We don't say now just exactly who was Muhammad. And we don't ask that question about Buddha. And we don't ask it about Confucius. There's a very clear history about those people. And we don't ask this about any other religious leader because we know that they're just men. They don't claim to be anything other than men. We recognize them as men. But we ask the question about Jesus Christ because he claimed to be God also. That he was not just a man, but that he was God in the flesh. And this is what makes this question so important, that we understand clearly who he is. He is more than just a man. Now, the Bible makes that claim, and Jesus made the claim. And as we'll see here in the confession of Peter, that the disciples had moved far beyond the point of believing that Jesus was nothing more than just an ordinary flesh and blood man. And so that same question is asked of us today, who is Jesus? And how you answer that question is the most important answer that you'll ever give. In fact, this answer determines the eternal destiny of your soul. So here in this chapter, we have two great theological doctrines of Christ, or two perspectives that are brought together. Who is this person, Jesus, and what did he come into this earth to do? How do you understand the person and the work of Christ? And to understand Christianity, you have to be able to answer that question correctly. Christianity is Christ. And so how you understand Christ determines whether or not you are actually a Christian. Now we look at the scriptures then in Matthew 16, beginning of verse 13. If you'll stand with me, please, for the reading of God's word once again. Matthew 16, 13. It says, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of of the living God. Father, thank you for your word and this great passage of scripture that we consider today. Speak to our hearts and open our minds and our hearts to the understanding of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to begin our study of this scripture this morning with point number one on your listening sheet, which is the examination of the apostles. The examination of the apostles. Now, at this point, the disciples had been are, are in the, uh, two years into their training with Jesus, and they'd walked with him up and down the land of Israel. Uh, they had just spent more than a year in the Galilean ministry, and they'd crisscrossed the Sea of Galilee many times as they watched Jesus heal the sick and cast out demons. He demonstrated power in the physical realm as well as in the spiritual realm. And if that weren't enough, on two separate occasions, the disciples witnessed as he quieted storms on the sea. And they saw that Jesus was able to control nature just by the spoken word. They also heard his rebuke for their lack of faith when he was able to feed 
those uh, thousands of people by multiplying the bread and the fish, the disciples still showed some lack of faith in Jesus and what he was able to do. But Jesus knew when these disciples had seen enough. He didn't ask them on the very, very first day of their conversion, do you really understand who I am? And he didn't ask them at the time that he was baptized, do you understand what I've come into this world to do? And he didn't ask them when those first miracles were done in Matthew chapter 4, do you know what I'm all about? And he didn't ask them after the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7, do you now understand everything that I've said? Do you understand what a different teacher I am? Do you understand how different I am from the people that you've heard before teach the Word of God? Do you really understand all of this about me now? Now, Jesus didn't ask the question then, but he waited until the time was right, and he waited until there was no reasonable doubt to test these disciples and to see if the faith that they had in him was really a genuine faith. Now, he had trained them, and it wasn't until he had been, they had been exposed to the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, and they were ready to break free from all of those traditions that they had been taught, it was not until these false teachers were shown to be what they were, false worshipers, false prophets of Jesus, or of God rather, that he asked them this question. And so it was then that Jesus examined them, and he handed them their test, and it had two questions on it. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am, and whom say ye that I am? Now, the answer to the first question is somewhat unimportant. It's really a lead-in question to get to the second one. You see, what the world thinks about Christ matters very little. The most important thing is, what do you think of Christ? That's the most important question. Now, let's back up just a little bit to try to, understanding, to understand the setting for the question in verse number 13, we learn that Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. Now, when you see the coast, that doesn't mean that this was on the sea coast, but when the Bible uses that term, many times it means just the border of a country. It means the region of the country. And so Jesus came into the coast or the, across the border to Caesarea Philippi. And if you look in the back of your Bible, you would, if you have a map there, you would see that Jesus and the disciples were in the northernmost point of Jewish territory. This is the area of the tribe of Dan. The city of Dan is located there. And in Bible times, if you wanted to describe Israel from border to border, you would mention this northern city of Dan and the southern city of Beersheba. And uh, you would say, if you wanted to say, well, I've been all over Israel from border to border, then you would say, well, I've been in Israel from Dan to Beersheba. That means I have covered the entire country. So Dan is this northernmost point in Israel. It's located, the city of Dan is located about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And located near to the city of Dan was the ancient city of Peneus. This was believed to be the birthplace. The Greeks believed it was the birthplace of the god Pan. And it was the center of cult worship of this heathen god. Herod Philip, who was one of the sons of Herod the Great, renamed this city Peneus. He'd renamed it to Caesarea uh, after the emperor Tiberius. 
and to distinguish it from the other Caesarea that's located on the coast of the Mediterranean, this particular place was called Caesarea Philippi. It was mainly Gentile territory, and it was associated with idol worship. Not only the, the god Pan, but also many other Greek gods that they had statues of there, and they worshipped. This is one, really, one of the most beautiful spots in all of Israel. Right here, close to it, is Mount Hermon, which is the, the largest mountain there. rises about 9,200 feet, snow-capped most of the year. And from Mount Hermon, there are, are many springs that flow down, that converge and uh, form the headwaters of the Jordan River. And the Jordan River flows from that point southward into the Sea of Galilee. Now, I have a picture for you that this morning, just a, one of the pictures of the springs that's located in that area. Just a very beautiful spot. And just to kind of catch you up on, on the territory there, the geography, the Jordan River flows down into the Sea of Galilee from this point, And the Sea of Galilee is like a bowl in the river. It's really a huge lake and then the Jordan River flows out from the southern end of that and then on down to the south towards Jerusalem. So this was the place where uh, the disciples and Jesus uh, had this conversation. It's mainly Gentile territory and it is associated with this idol worship. And it's significant that Jesus would take the disciples to this area to ask the question because he was in the heart of this idolatrous country. It's the place where Israel, when they departed from the living God, this was the first place that was led into idolatry and had departed from from God and God had to forsake Israel because of that. So even though it was wicked Gentile territory, you remember that Jesus said on two occasions that he had found greater faith among some of the Gentiles than he'd found among his own people who were of Israel. Remember he said that in the 8th chapter when he talked about the uh, centurion who wanted his servant to be healed and he remarked about the great faith that the centurion had. And then we read about that just a few weeks ago also uh, uh, where he cast the demon out of, uh, of a woman's daughter, a Canaanite woman's daughter in chapter 15. And he said that he had never seen faith that great in all of Israel. So we have this background of heathen idolatry And also keeping in mind that his own people, that Jesus' own people, did not understand what God really required of them. And so in both cases, this question is framed of both of these groups to make a distinction between true and false ideas of God. So Jesus asked his first question, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus says, what is the gossip that's going on about me? What are people saying about me? Well, he knew the answer to that question, of course. And as I said a moment ago, this was a lead-in to get to the most important question. But we do need to look at this for just a moment because it is applicable to our world today. The answer that these disciples gave to what people really think, who is Jesus? And they answered the question, what was it that people were saying about him? And I think it is important that we look at that for just a moment. So secondly, we're looking at the speculation about Christ. How do the people speculate about who he was? Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now Jesus used the term here, the Son of Man. And as we've noted previously in our studies, 
that was his personally favorite title that he used of himself. And it refers back to the Old Testament, to Daniel chapter 7. And it's a title that applies to Jesus as the king, as the Messiah king who would come into the world. Now, as Jesus posed this question here, he was interested in the people's assessment of him regarding his relationship to them in his humanity. Now, I find that the reply that the disciples gave to this was very interesting because what they could have done, they could have said, now, Jesus, here are the worst things that have been said about you. And the worst things that were said actually came from the religious leaders. Remember, they said that he was from Satan. He said he cast out demons by the power of Satan. He's in league with Satan. When he claimed that he was greater than Solomon and greater than the prophet Jonah, well, they thought that he was completely out of his mind. And they said bad things about him. But this is not the answer that the disciples gave to the question. Instead, they actually related the very best that was said about him. And I think it's, again, important that we look at that, that Jesus did not want to know the worst that was said, but he wanted to know that after all of his teachings, after all that he'd said to the people, after all the miracles that he had done, what were they saying about him? What about those that were actually listening to him and those that, had, uh, that favored him and those that had opinions of him? What did they say? Had they come far enough in recognizing who he really was? Well, we noticed the company that they put Jesus in. Some said that he was John the Baptist. Now remember back in the 14th chapter, we have the story of how that Herod had cut off John the Baptist's head. He killed John the Baptist. And so Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist who had risen from the dead. And the reason that Jesus was able to do such miracles was that he was this supernatural person that had risen from the dead and he was actually John the Baptist. And there were many that held that opinion because they thought that John was a great prophet. And so they put Jesus into the company of this great prophet, John the Baptist. And that wasn't a bad assessment. That wasn't saying anything bad about him. It actually showed that they had very high regard for him. Because the people did not accept what the religious leaders said. When they said that Jesus was from the prince of demons, that Beelzebub had influenced him, they didn't believe that. They said, no, no, he is a great prophet. He's like John the Baptist. And then there were some, as we look here in the scriptures, who thought that he was Elijah. Now, the ministry of Elijah was characterized as an age of miracles. In fact, uh, the greatest miracles, some of the greatest ones that were done in the Old Testament were done by Elijah. There was no prophet before or one since until Jesus came along that had done as many miracles as Elijah did. And so when Jesus appeared on the scene, they thought, well, he must be Elijah. Elijah has come back. Well, why would they think that? Well, it's because of the last scripture that we have in the book of uh, Malachi, the last scripture of the Old Testament, which says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So the people thought, well, he must be Elijah because of that Old Testament scripture And they believed that when the Messiah appeared, that Elijah would come back at that time. 
And still today, when the Jews celebrate Passover, they set an empty chair at the table for Elijah in case that he should show up and that he would come and usher in the golden age of this great king who will be the last king to sit on the throne of David. Now that was really a compliment to say that he was Elijah. If, if you wanted to be in the company of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, Elijah is one that you'd want to be in the company of. Then some gave another answer to the question. Who do the people think that he is? Well, some said that he's Jeremiah. And if you looked at the way that Jesus treated people, you could see a lot of the character of Jeremiah in him. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. In the Old Testament, I hope you're familiar with this, that there is a book that's called The Lamentations of Jeremiah. Jeremiah wept over his people. He was the prophet that sorrowed over the apostasy of Israel. And you know why he did? Because Jeremiah had received a revelation from God. God told him that because of the wickedness of the people, that the Babylonians would come and they would destroy Jerusalem. They would destroy the holy temple in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah, having that information, sorrowed that the people had turned so far away from God that God would not stop his judgment upon the nation. Well, Jesus had that kind of character. He also wept over the people. We've seen how that he had great compassion over the physical condition of the folks. Uh, He healed them of their diseases. He healed them by the thousands. But more important than their physical condition, Jesus was concerned about their spiritual condition. And that's because the leaders in Israel, the spiritual leaders that were supposed to be the shepherds, were not shepherds at all. But they were like ravenous wolves that destroyed the flock of God. And so we see Jesus in the end of the 11th chapter compassionately reaching out to the people and telling them, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That was the compassion of Jesus. We see him at another time where he wept over the city of Jerusalem because he saw that deplorable spiritual state that the people were in. He had a lot of the character of Jeremiah in him. But perhaps more complimentary than that was when they regarded Jeremiah as the prophet who had preserved, they thought, some of the sacred articles that were in the temple when the Babylonians came to destroy it. They believed that Jeremiah had taken the Ark of the Covenant and that he'd hidden it somewhere in a cave and that when the Messiah came that Jeremiah would come back and he would reveal the location of the Ark of the Covenant. Even today, there are Jews that believe that in some passageway beneath the city of Jerusalem that the Ark of the Covenant is hidden. Perhaps it's somewhere underneath the Temple Mount, and they're not actually able to access that part of the city uh, because of the Muslims have control over it. But they hope that the Ark of the Covenant is there. And so when they said that he's like Jeremiah, they had things like this in mind, that he's the one that can tell us where the sacred article of the temple is located, the Ark of the Covenant. So you can see again the high regard that these people had for Jesus. He could be John the Baptist, they said. He could be Elijah. He could be Jeremiah. Then there was another response. They said he may be one of the other prophets. So we look in the Old Testament and we see, are there other prophets that might match the kind of character that Jesus had? Perhaps he's like Zephaniah. 
Zephaniah ended his prophecy with the hope of Israel's return to glory. He said this in the third chapter of Zephaniah, verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Verse 17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. And in the 20th verse, at that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. And so they said, what if he's Zephaniah? What if he's come to help restore the kingdom to Israel again? So it was really a great compliment. These were good things that were being said about Jesus. To put him up on a pedestal and to use his name in conjunction with the greatest of Israel's prophets, that said they had high regard for him. They couldn't put him in the category of their leaders, of their uh, prophets that they had then, of their teachers like Gamaliel or Hillel that they had so much respect for. They didn't put Jesus into that category, but they said he must be one of those Old Testament prophets, the greatest that Israel has ever seen. Now, folks, all of that sounds good. It sounds great to have such high regard for Jesus that you would say he is the best of the best. He's the greatest of all the prophets. But do you notice a problem with that? As good as those answers appear to be, they fall short of being right. They're getting close, and the people are learning more about him. And each of those answers actually puts him on the cusp of the kingdom, but at the same time, they refer to him as a sign of the coming king. Each of those makes him a proposed forerunner of the king that will come. And what they did not recognize, that he was the Messiah himself, that he was the great king that was coming. The Messiah is in the world, and so every assessment that they made of Jesus made him less than what he truly was. And you say, well, how is that so important? Why is that important to us today? Well, let me show you how that applies today. We have the same type of views in the religious world today. There are people that get close to who Jesus is. They they get close, but they don't have the right answer. They don't have anything bad to say about Jesus. They give him all plus marks. There are no negatives that they say about him. They bestow upon him all the superlatives that they can, but they don't come all the way to the truth that he alone is God. For instance, the Mormons give Jesus high marks. They call him their savior. They'll even tell you that he is their personal savior, as you've probably heard many times in this campaign, this election campaign. But they do not believe that he is the God of all gods. They do not believe that he is the eternally existent God that has no beginning. In other words, they do not believe that he is the God that is. Now, you remember when Jesus walked on the water And he came to the disciples in that very dark hour and they didn't recognize who he was. They thought that he was a ghost. And he said to the disciples, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. That's in chapter 14. When he said, it is I, that literally translated is, I am. Be not afraid, I am. And you see, this is what the Mormons do not believe. They do not believe that he is the I am 
which is an expression of the eternally existent God. But instead, they believe that he was a created being. The Jehovah Witnesses don't believe that he's the Jehovah of the Old Testament. Now, they also heap superlatives on him, but they don't recognize him as anything other than being a little God, just another God, not the infinite God. And so they hope that when they get to heaven, that whatever idea they have of heaven is that they're going to meet someone who is better, someone more powerful, someone who is greater than Jesus Christ. Now, these ideas of him sound good. They're a fairly good assessment of Jesus in one way. They're speculations that are better than some people give, but they don't go all the way. These are speculations that that ascribe to Jesus all of the good of the prophets, none of the negatives of them, but they don't go to the truth of who he actually is. They are close. And as some say, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, It doesn't count for the salvation of your soul. You can't be close. You must know who he is. Now, why did Jesus ask this question of the disciples? Who do they say that he is? Well, he's bringing out the contrast. He wants to know, have these disciples stopped short of knowing the truth about him? Do they have an inferior view of Christ? In other words, is their faith really a saving faith? And that's where he's leading them. Now, those previous views, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, a great teacher, great leader, extraordinary man, none of those is the right answer. None of those answers are going to make you a Christian. So he follows up with, but whom say ye that I am? Now, thirdly, then, we look at the affirmation of Peter. Peter answers the question. Now, I want you to notice, though, that the question is asked of all of these disciples, not just of Peter. And you can actually see that if you have your King James Version today. You can see it in the King James Version by the use of the plural pronoun ye. Whom say ye that I am? This is really one of the problems of the newer versions is they drop these old English pronouns. They get rid of the these and thous and ye and all of that when those are actually words that help us to understand a passage of Scripture like this. Who was Jesus addressing? Was it Peter alone or is it all of the disciples? He said, whom say ye? That means all of these disciples. Who do you say that I am? So he asked the whole group and Peter answered for the whole group. Now, even though we call it the confession of Peter or the affirmation of Peter, each of those disciples, with the exception of Judas, knew the right answer to this. And each of them could answer in the same way that Peter answered. And that's a very important detail. And catalog that, if you will, in your mind when we get to the next uh, portion of Scripture because it's very important to understand who Jesus is talking to when he gives the explanation of the rock on which the church is built. So just file that away and I'll explain it to you in a later message. So without hesitation, Peter answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the answer that Jesus accepts is not an answer that says that he's a great prophet. There's not an answer that you can give that's so complimentary of him that you think that he is one of the greatest people that ever lived. It's not the right answer about him. It's not the substance of saving faith. And so the answer cannot be, you're a God, Jesus. We recognize that, but you are a little God. There is one that's greater than you. The answer can't be, well, you are a created being. And we're going to become gods just like you are. 
And it can't be that you are a mediator, but so is Mary, and so are angels, and so are dead saints. Those are not saving faith answers. Those are not answers that will get you into the pearly gates, that will be a passport to allow you to go into heaven. Peter answered the question correctly. Now, the other answers prove that the people that have those opinions are not truly Christians. You can't consider them to be Christians because they don't answer the question right. Christianity is Christ, and it requires the right answer. Anything short of Peter's affirmation or confession of Christ is not good enough for Jesus. Now, notice how Peter answers. He says, thou art the Christ. And that means you are the Messiah. Now, the word Christ is the same as Messiah. Christ is the Greek form. Messiah is the Hebrew form. Now, who is the Messiah? Well, let me very quickly give you four identifying marks that tell us who the Messiah is. And, and each of these I could preach a sermon on, but I only have time for one sermon. And probably not enough time for all of it. Uh, but I'm going to try to Instead of giving you ten parts to cover all this, I'm going to give you about a part and a half this morning. And that's all we can do. What does it mean, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah? Well, just to give four, four very quick answers to that question. Nationally, nationally it means the leader who will sit on David's throne, leading it to be the greatest nation the world has ever known. Number two, militarily, it means the commander who will lead Israel's army to conquer the world. Number three, religiously, it means the supernatural figure that comes from God to bring righteousness over the whole world. And then number four, personally, the magnate who brings peace to the whole world. Now, if you don't have time to fill all of that in, ask me a little bit later or borrow after someone else and we'll get them all down so we can move on. But Jesus is all of these things. He is the Messiah. We know him in his offices as prophet, priest, and king. He is called Jesus Christ. Jesus is the name in his humanity. Christ is his name in his deity. So Peter answered the question, thou art the Christ. The second part of his answer is that thou art the son of God. And that means that he is the same in being an essence of God or as God. And this is where the cults fall short. This is where people that call him a prophet fall short. This term, the son of God, is a Hebrew way of saying, you are God. When Jesus said that he was the son of God, the objections that the Jews raised to that statement was, you make yourself to be God. And that's the big sticking point. That's the difference between him and them. They understood exactly what he meant when he said, I am the son of God. It's the same as saying that I'm the same being and the same essence as God. Colossians says, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And Peter affirmed that statement. Thirdly, he says, you are the son of a living God. And that means the source and being of life, possessing the power of life within himself. Now, folks, that part of Peter's confession really seals the deal of true personal saving faith. 
Because Peter's confession goes beyond the cross, it goes beyond the grave, and it takes us to the resurrection of Christ as the ever-living Son of God. He is the God that lives forever. Now, even though Peter would see him go to the cross and be laid in the tomb, deep in his heart, he knew that something has to happen. Something has to happen because the one that asked the question is God in the flesh. God does not die. Now, Peter didn't miss the mark in the answer. He he didn't stop short in his confession of all that Christ is. Now, you think back to the setting that they're in Caesarea Philippi. Here is a place of idolatry. This is a place of heathen worship. And Jesus said, you are the living God. And the contrast here can't be lost. These things are put in Scripture, and they're very important because here they are looking at all these idols that line that area, the idols of stone, the idols that men have made, and they looked at those idols, and Peter said, you are not an idol of stone. You are not a God who cannot see or hear. You are not a representation of God. You are God. This is what Peter meant. He meant that you are the God of the burning bush. You are the God that says, I am the great I am. And anything less than that is not good enough to save anyone. Now that brings us then to our last observation today. And that is the commendation of Christ. In verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. And we're used to hearing Jesus say things like this. Jesus gave us the Beatitudes. Beatitude means a blessing. This is a Beatitude. And Jesus commended Peter for this excellent confession of faith. There were so many thousands of people in Israel that had seen the same things that Peter saw. They saw the same things that the disciples saw, but they hadn't come all the way. Their faith stopped short. They went as far as to see Jesus as a prophet, but they did not make it all the way to see him as the Messiah, the living Son of God. Now, it's very important that each of these disciples understand very clearly who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, because along the road, there are going to be a lot of bumps, a lot of things that would cause them to wonder, is he truly the Christ? They started out believing that he was. You remember that? When he called the disciples, they started out believing he was the Christ or they never would have followed him. But they started to have misunderstandings about him. And those misunderstandings ran along the same lines that the false religious leaders had, that they thought that here comes the Messiah. If he is the Messiah, he will begin his kingdom on the earth right now. And so the disciples, as you know, began to argue over their spots in his kingdom. James and John said, I want to sit on your right hand. The other says, I want to sit on your left hand when you come into your kingdom. And they argued over that because they believed that Jesus was going to set up a kingdom right then. But the further that they went along, they saw the people rejected him. They heard the blasphemous charges that were made against him. They heard all the negatives that were said about him. And then they heard all the superlatives that were said. Well, he's a good guy. He is a a prophet. He's a good man. He's extraordinary. They heard all of that. And they wondered, do we misunderstand who he truly is? Is he really the Messiah? And John the Baptist wondered that, didn't he? John the Baptist, when he was put into prison, sent his disciples to see Jesus. And he said, are you the Christ? Or do we look for another? 
And here is the man that heard the Father speak from heaven and say at the baptism of Jesus, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And John the Baptist had his doubts. So these disciples would have their doubts. They heard all the pros and the cons from both sides. How did they make the right decision? How did they make the right decision? Well, in the last section of the chapter, we'll see there that Jesus had to rebuke Peter because he objected to the crucifixion. That shows us that what Peter said in verse number 17 did not come from his brain. That Peter did not figure this out. And so Jesus didn't say to him, Now, Peter, you are just one whiz of a theologian. You've seen all the proof. You've weighed all of this out. You've considered the evidence. You're smarter than all the rest of the Jews. Because you've figured it out now. Congratulations on your amazing powers of perception that you understand who I truly am. Is that what Jesus said to him? No. Look where the credit goes. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. You see something here? Everywhere that we go in Scripture, we keep running up against the sovereignty of God. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. There are some people who want to write the sovereignty of God out of the Bible. And they believe that salvation is just an intellectual choice. That one day I just decide I'm going to be saved. I'm smart enough. I can figure it out. I understand all of this. I can decipher all the clues that are given. And just any time that I want, I can believe in Christ and I'll be saved. You know what the Bible is telling us right here? It's telling us that you will never be smart enough to figure this out. That you can spend three years walking with Jesus Christ himself and go with him from Dan to Beersheba and hear all the teachings, hear all the doctrines, see all the miracles and not come to the right conclusion unless God himself should open your eyes to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only God makes us understand who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit opens up our eyes to the truth. It takes God to reveal it. Now, nobody then is going to get it from human understanding. You, you may ask the question, you know, why, why don't the Mormons understand this? It's all in the Bible, isn't it? Why don't the Mormons understand this? And you take a, a look at the Mormons, and you may not know this, but they are systematically taking over Washington, D.C. They've quietly implanted uh, themselves into the highest... Uh, offices in government and they appoint people of like persuasion they're smart people they're very smart people super smart they know how to get things done while we sit around on our hands they're out riding bicycles all over the world preaching their false doctrine and trying to get people to believe in a false god and you ask the question why don't they understand who Jesus really is how can they believe that Jesus was a created being how can they believe that Satan and Jesus are from the same stock and that Satan decided to be good and Jesus or Satan decided to be bad and Jesus decided to be good how can they believe something like that when the bible doesn't teach anything like that well the answer to the question is it takes god to reveal the truth it takes god to open up our eyes we're not saved because we're better than them 
We're not saved because we know more than them. We're not saved because we're more deserving from the, than them. And I dare say that there's not probably a person in this room today that can hold a candle to the type of devotion and love that they have for family and their false god. We're not better. We're just blessed. We're blessed because God has seen fit to open our eyes to the truth. That's God the Father's work through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus knew that these men, that these disciples were genuine. The Heavenly Father gave them to him. This is what he says in John 17. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. So Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. One commentator noted that Simon Barjona means son of a dove. Now we know it means son of Jonas, but the meaning behind that is son of a dove. And so what does the dove symbolize? It symbolizes the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying to him, Peter, you are a son of God because of the enlightening of the Holy Spirit of God. Now that brings me then to this most important question for you. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Now in the original language, this question is emphatic. It's a very pointed question, an insistent question. Whom say ye that I am? And the answer you give that, to that question tells everything about you. See, maybe you know enough Bible that you can quote all the pertinent passages and give an answer. Maybe you have learned a creed or a confession or a statement of faith and you can recite it backwards. Maybe you know a catechism or the Apostles' Creed and you can say it by heart. Maybe you have all the answers in your head. The answer is, what do you truly believe deep down inside? What do you truly believe in your heart about Jesus? Do you know who he is? Have you made a personal affirmation of him as your Lord and your Savior? Have you put complete reliance and trust in him and him alone? That's the only answer that counts. You can't get close and be right. You can't approach this and say good things about Jesus and talk about what a great man that he was and how you want to be like him and, and how he was a great example to live by. No, you've got to come all the way to him as the Messiah King, the living God. He's the Lord and the Savior of your soul. And the question is, have you trusted him? You don't want to get the answer to this question wrong. If you ever answer a question in all of your life, it's important, realize that this one, you cannot get this answer wrong. And I hope today that you can truly know in your heart, or you do know, I'm glad I know who Jesus is. He's the Savior of my soul, and Him alone, in Him alone, do I trust. I encourage you, if you haven't done that, to do it today. Let's pray. Father, as we come into your presence now, we just thank you for this great 
confession that Peter made, confession that all the disciples could have made of Jesus Christ. Help us to understand, Lord, that you are everything that the Word of God reveals about you, that we have to believe and accept every word that's written as being the truth, that we know that you are the only God, that we know that you are the one who's, who came to save us from our sins, and we can trust nothing else, not in ourselves, not in our good works, not in anything that we think that we can do, not in our abilities and powers of perception, none of that. We have to look to you and you alone and ask ask the eternal God, the Holy Spirit, to open up our eyes to understanding who you truly are and what you've done for us. I pray that you would do that to some person today. Speak to their heart and help them to know who Jesus truly is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.